Hello and welcome to Bright Wings, children's books to make the heart soar. I am your host, Charity Hill. The purpose of this conversation is to help mothers and fathers identify books that will liberate their children to embrace truth, goodness, and beauty. I am reviewing two books for you today as part of an ongoing project within Bright Wings called Books Worth Reading. In these book reviews, I try to share with you enough information as well as my own opinion so that you can decide whether the book that I'm talking about is worth reading. The idea is that I share the pluses and minuses with you. I share my interpretation and judgment with you, and then you get to exercise your judgment. We're going to look at two books, and the first is Beauty, a retelling of the story of Beauty and the Beast by Robin McKinley. And the other one is Snow and Rose, published in the past few years here by Emily Winfield Martin. For a girl who loves historical fiction, you've heard a lot about fairy tales from me here on Brightwing's Children's Books. Frankly, I didn't start thinking about fairy tales until this podcast, but it's an interesting thing to have been thinking about for the past couple years. In these extended retellings, so they're novel-length retellings, uh, the first one, Beauty by Robin McKinley, was published in 1978. That means almost 45 years ago by this point. What struck me about this book is my experience after reading it of, of thinking, where have you been all my life? I loved this book. That's a, that's a hilariously biased way to begin a book review, but there you have it. So what are some of the features of this book, Beauty by Robin McKinley? What's fun is to look for you know the features that set it apart from other tellings. So I'll be pointing out some of those. What I loved about it is that it had notable character development. And in order to develop her characters, she rearranges some of the usual fairy tale tropes. She makes this marvelous argument that beauty and goodness can coexist. And she does this with beauty's sisters. And what's very interesting, too, in this telling is that in so often in the in the Grimm Brothers based retellings of this story, Beauty and the Beast, the sisters are selfish, they're beautiful, but they're rude and selfish and vain and interested in what they can get. And that is not the way McKinley tells the story. So that is, that's something I was expecting. And then she transformed the way that we could s- interpret the fairy tale. I love that. So let me read to you a passage. We find out that Beauty's real name is Honor and Beauty is a nickname. McKinley writes, All three of us were pretty children with curly blonde hair and gray-blue eyes. And if Grace's hair was the brightest and Hope's eyes were the biggest, well, for the first 10 years, the difference wasn't too noticeable. Grace, who was seven years older than I, grew into a beautiful and profoundly graceful young girl. Her hair was wavy and fine and as butter yellow as it had been when she was a baby. Hope's hair darkened to a rich chestnut brown and her big eyes turned a smoky green. Grace was an inch or two the taller, and her skin was rosy, where Hope's was ivory pale. Both were tall and slim, with tiny waists, short, straight noses, dimples when they smiled, and small, delicate hands and feet. I was five years younger than Hope, and I don't know what happened to me. As I grew older, my hair turned mousy, neither brown nor blonde, and baby curl fell out, and refused to be curled with the curling iron. Worse, I didn't grow. I was thin, awkward, and undersized with big, long-fingered hands and huge feet. Worst of all, when I turned 13, my skin broke out in spots. There hadn't been a spot in our mother's family for centuries, I was sure. So in McKinley's telling, beauty is not physically beautiful. 
But nevertheless, the nickname sticks because, as McKinley writes, I was too proud to ask that it be discarded. I wasn't really very fond of my given name, Honor, either, if it came to that. It sounded sallow and angular to me, as if honorable were the best that could be said of me. My sisters were too kind to refer to the increasing inappropriateness of my nickname. It was all the worse that they were as good-hearted as they were beautiful, and their kindness was sincerely meant. Our father, bless him, didn't seem to notice that there was any egregious and deplorable difference between his first two daughters and his youngest. On the contrary, he used to smile at us over the dinner table and say how pleased he was that we were growing into three such dissimilar individuals. In time, I came to be grateful for his generous blindness. I could talk to him openly about my dreams for the future without fear of his pitying me or doubting my motives. So McKinley immediately changes our expectations for the story that she's going to tell, the way that she sees the Beauty and the Beast tale. I love that. It actually is really enriching. It rounds out the characters and gives them nuance and complexity and texture. So we see that Beauty's problems are more interior. In the Grim Fairy Tale and in Disney, Beauty has a kind of character that's already there, only nobody can recognize it. And so she kind of needs the opportunity of the Beast to show forth who she is. In McKinley's telling, One of the things that's under development is Beauty's character. It's not yet achieved. And there's situational conflict. The family loses their fortunes, right? But the conflict is more interior. The conflict is not with her sisters. And their goodness and their care are believable. They're not flat. And in fact, this only highlights Beauty's need to develop her identity. It would be a marvelous thing to ponder and discuss with your child how Beauty's nickname, Beauty, and the actions that she takes really transform our understanding of the meaning of the word honor. In McKinley's telling, the father has arisen from nothing. He was a craftsman who built ships, who then became a merchant, and he married a noblewoman. Then, as the story goes, he loses his ships spends money on caring for the shipwrecked sailors, and he tries to cushion the fall of his highest men with his fortune. Then he has to go back, in McKinley's telling, to being a craftsman, alongside his his new, or soon-to-be at least, son-in-law, who's been working for him as a blacksmith, but has wants to leave the city and go back into the country. So the whole family goes and moves um, with Gervais to his original hometown. And unlike the Disney telling of Beauty and the Beast, Beauty in this story is very glad to go live a provincial life. She's happy to leave the city. She doesn't mind. She prefers the simple people rather than the high society. Beauty loves books. We have we understand that she loves, um, she knows Latin and Greek, and she loves, uh, if she loves anyone, it says she's in love with Euripides. And <laughs> she used to read Greek to her horse. That's the other thing that pulls her away from her books is her horse, Greatheart. Of course, in the fairy tale, the family's change of fortune is just one of the things that drives the plot, and it's not given a lot of development. Nothing, right, is given a lot of development in fairy tales. We just mostly get the facts. But McKinley does a wonderful job filling out what happens in this change of fortune. So, for example, Beauty's sister, Grace, was engaged to a sea captain and his ship is lost at sea. We know nothing about what happens to him. And this is Grace's sorrow. And her father's sorrow is the loss of his business and his livelihood and his whole, his whole way of being in the town. So the change of fortune and the journey to the new town uh, in the country to the north, 
in, in all of this, we see their character develop. As they get used to the relative poverty, and the, we see how hardship develops them. Beauty's older sisters, Hope and Grace, get used to doing housework. And though their hands become red and calloused, they don't, they don't develop calluses on their hearts. They still, they're able to live without resentment and continue to be good to each other and care for each other. This contrasts with the grim fairy tale, right? Where the change of fortune shows the, the poor spirit and the poor character of the sisters. The change of fortune reveals what weak character they have. Beauty's role in their new life, in their new situation, is that she hauls wood and chops wood and assists uh, Gervais and her father in their tasks. She trains her marvelous horse to pull, and so her horse becomes famous for um, the loads that he can pull, his feats of strength. Beauty grows, and she becomes strong in body and tan. And just like in the fairy tale, perhaps you remember, her father gets news of one of his ships is coming back to port, one of his ships that was suspected to, to have been lost. So he goes back south to recover it, to receive it and sell it, and to see also if he can discover any news of Grace's lost fiance. McKinley does a marvelous job describing the father's return. And the father does a marvelous job describing what it was like to be a guest in the beast's castle after he gets lost in a storm on his return to the farm from town. And I don't know about you, but I was always bothered uh, by the father. So when the beast lays before the father, the alternatives that I will either kill you or you must send someone back to me who I will not harm, but it's either you die or someone takes your place to, to live with me. And then the father agrees to that. I always thought, well, that is, I always thought, I mean, we usually think that the father must be a weak man or a very poor sort of father to have agreed to this plan, to agree to Beauty's plan that she return in his place. But I love that McKinley is able to save the father from being a coward she makes us understand how such a thing could actually be reasonable in human relationships, this kind of arrangement. But listen to this, this, this great writing, okay? So here we have Beauty, who's used to getting her own way, talking her father into things. Beauty, her father said, I refuse to let you go. What will you do then? Tie me up? I said, I will go. And what's more? If you don't promise right now to take me with you when the time comes, I will run off tonight while you're asleep. I need only get lost in the woods, you said, to find the castle. I can't bear this, said Hope. There must be a way out. No, there is no way out, said Father. And you agree? asked Grace. Ger nodded. Then I must believe it, she said slowly. And one of us must go. But it need not be you, Beauty. I could go. No, I said, the rose was for me, and I'm the youngest and the ugliest. The world isn't losing much in me. Besides, Hope couldn't get along without you, nor could the babies, while my best skills are cutting wood and tending the garden. You can get any lad in the village to do that. Grace looked at me a long minute. You know I always wear you down in the end, I said. I see you are very determined, she said. I don't understand why. I shrugged. Well, I'm turned 18. I'm ready for an adventure. 
I can't, began father. I'd let her have her way if I were you, said Gare. Do you realize what you're saying? shouted father, standing up abruptly and spilling the empty leather satchel off his lap. I have seen this beast, this monster, this horror, and you have not. And you are willing that I should give him, it, my youngest daughter, your sister, to spare my own wretched life. You are the one who does not understand, Papa, I said. We are not asking that I be killed in your stead, but that I be allowed to save your life. It is an honorable beast, at least. I am not afraid. Father stared at me as if he saw the beast reflected in my eyes. I said, He cannot be so bad if he loves roses so much. But he is a beast, said Father helplessly. I saw that he was weakening and wishing only to comfort him. I said, Cannot a beast be tamed? As Grace had a few minutes before Father stared down at me as I sat curled up on the floor with a little wooden box in my lap. I always get my own way in the end, Papa, I said. Yes, child, I know. And now I regret it, he said heavily. You ask the impossible. Very well. When the month is up, we will go together. And then you still have nearly 200 pages of wonderful writing after that part. That's like 75 pages in. You have about 200 more pages after that to enjoy Beauty's experience of getting to know the beast at the castle, the strange permutations of the magical castle. Um, One of the things I most enjoyed is so magical that McKinley suggests about the library is how the books in the library work. And there's this marvelous library in which Beauty is able to read all the books that theoretically ever have been published. And so she's able to read uh, Robert Browning. She's able to read Little Women if she wants. Um, It's just marvelous that she can read books from the future if she wants. Um, And so there's there's this all at once quality to the Beast's Library. Beautiful. The one thing I feel is a, a, a slight flaw, it's a little lacking, is that at the end, I only wish Robin McKinley had spent more time on the falling action, on the resolution of the story. I I wish that the Beast, you know, slash Prince and Beauty had been given more lines, had a few more conversations, a few more moments of explanation at the end, kind of really tie the whole together. The story is listed as young adult fiction, which I found a little surprising, perhaps because there's so much thoughtfulness and reflection going on in it. There's a lot of narrative. There's some description. All of it is just so well done. Um, I was just surprised to find out that it was listed for 12 to 18 year olds. I think that the content is so clean that you could list it as a middle grade novel. The romance in it is very sweet and basic. There's a kiss. There's blushing attraction, but it's very mild. It must have been given a young adult rating um, because of its level of reflectivity and self-awareness and character development, all of which I think our younger children could have more of. (laughs) So beautiful book. Even though you know how it's going to end, it is so deeply enjoyable. Next, I'm happy to talk to you about Snow and Rose which is written and illustrated by Emily Winfield Martin. It was published in 2017. The illustrations in it are really lovely, really lovely. Um, 
aspects of them seem a little sketch like, a little, um, a little, you know, have sort of features of watercolors to them, kind of nature drying um, work. The illustrations, as well as the writing, do have occasionally this surrealist feel to them. I would say Snow and Rose more than Robin McKinley's novel-length telling of Beauty and the Beast. I would say Snow and Rose in this retelling. You, they, Emily Winfield Martin keeps the kind of chiaroscuro, the light and dark quality that fairy tales that is characteristic of fairy tales, I would say that she kind of maintains that in a certain way, even over the long retelling. The bones of this story feel very similar. And you almost think by the end, well, I feel at the end as though I've discovered very little extra in a certain sense. Um, Although she gives us a lot more detail about things that perhaps happen off stage. So, uh, One thing that Martin does is that she reverses the roles of Snow and Rose, as far as I can tell from the Brothers Grimm telling. So in the Brothers Grimm telling, Snow is more gentle and calm and sweet and uh, more of a homebody than Rose. In Martin's telling, Rose is more shy, but also more measured and self-controlled. She's And Snow is more willful, more bold, bolder, capable of anger and force even. And she's uh, a brunette with rosy cheeks. Snow is blonde and fair and blue-eyed. One thing that sets the novel Snow and Rose apart from the fairy tale Snow White and Rose Red is that we definitely have a more fairy tale-like forest in the novel than we do in the short form of the fairy tale. So the woods, even at the end, um, the woods and the creatures are, are still mysterious to us. What Martin does give us is she gives us the backstory. Why are the girls living in the woods with their poor widowed mother? In Martin's telling, the father has disappeared. He's gone on a journey and he has disappeared in the forest. And this is what causes the family to have a reversal of fortune. And so they move to the woods with their remaining fortune and their remaining possessions and someone else, and they can, they're living in sight of their old house. Someone else, um, some rich family, some noble family moves in. They're living in the woods with their mother who is still dazed and preoccupied with grieving the loss of her husband and the framework of their life together. In both tales, in both the, the short form fairy tale and in Snow and Rose, the girls are running about the forest. But in Snow and Rose, it is not the mild and safe place in the Snow White as it is in the Snow White and Rose Red fairy tale. So in the Snow White and Rose Red fairy tale, like the girls would just sleep out overnight in the woods on the moss and their mother knows where they are. They're out in the woods and she doesn't worry about them in the fairy tale. Um, in this story, the girls discover pretty, pretty right away that there's something strange going on in these woods. It's not just that there are bandits in the woods. And but the girls and some woodland neighbors are distressed because there's um, ongoing disappearances of forest people and, and there's a growing danger posed to everyone by these extra large forest animals 
They're a little creepy, like extra big toads, extra huge fish. Um, so that you can sort of see this sort of surrealist thread that I mentioned earlier. And the, so, and the, the forest is just not a safe place with kidnappings, bandits, and oversized animals. So as you will see, the girls have even rescued a dwarf several times from these vicious oversized animals. Very, very strange. So as in the fairy tale by Grimm, Snow and Rose and their mother take an enormous bear into their cottage. But in this case, the author, Martin, does a really good job explaining, making, making us believe that doing this is reasonable that taking this bear into their home is a reasonable choice. And Martin describes this scene. That night, when Rose fed the bear, she approached him with her usual tentative steps. Snow was bandaging his leg. His old wound was bleeding again. She looked up as Rose hesitated, but Rose kept coming, drawing closer, unafraid. She put the bowl of food before him, then lifted it to his mouth, stroking his head. Finally, she felt she knew him. Finally, she believed she could call him her own, not as a pet, but as something wild that had chosen to be hers. And with that belief came a truth. The bear might be dangerous to others, but he wasn't dangerous to her. This truth wrapped around Rose like a quilt, a kind of safety she hadn't felt since her father had gone. Now, this is a good tale of Chiaro Escuro, a fairy tale, light and darkness. It's simple and clear, and yet it has a kind of poetic depth, almost an allegorical depth. Only I'm not sure that it points. Maybe I'm not sure how far it points, but beautiful nonetheless. Although it is a little bit episodic, um, they, the author doesn't kind of fill you in on all the details. There is not a continuous flow. Sometimes it fades out of one scene and into another. Um, there is there is a plot point that I find a little perplexing. There is a mysterious library that a, they discover in the woods in which it is not a library of books, rather, but of objects. And I think the suggestion is that the objects are in the library that you check them out and you either create a story with them or you discover the story of the object. It's kind of not clear. <laughs> and um, it's kind of a plot point that hardly goes anywhere. And so it's it starts to be sort of intriguing and interesting, but then it, then it kind of doesn't seem to go very far. I think that's kind of too bad. I wish more had been done with that aspect. I don't know why an editor didn't have something to say about that. And then one small critique is that um, I think it's difficult. It's probably difficult to write an, an extended version of a fairy tale because you want your characters to have real emotions that, as my book flap says, that readers will recognize in themselves. And yet it's tricky to write an extended version of a fairy tale, perhaps because it is sitting, quote, on the borders of enchantment. And I feel like this book is a little bit undecided about what it wants to be real and what it wants to be fantasy and fantastical. And so some of that becomes a kind of surrealism. I tend to not like surrealism because I feel like it's a twisting of the natural, whereas magic, magic can actually be in accord with the, uh, the operations of our world's cosmology. So sometimes 
the operations of the cosmology in Snow and Rose are just not clear. So we're expecting that this is the story of enchanted woods, which have been waiting for these girls to come and break a set of spells. That's what the, the side papers tell us to expect. But inside the story, sometimes we have these pages, like trees are talking to each other, and we're overhearing it, or some other creatures, which are maybe not specified, they're talking about the girls. We don't have a clear sense that the girls know that they have a purpose, that they're intentionally breaking these spells. They just seem to stumble upon the ability to liberate the forest from its enchantment. And I kind of don't like that. I like a, a clear quest by people who can see that there's something wrong and have decided to take action. Then like there's the, something conscious going on. There's a deliberate adventure. Snow and Rose, well, it's a good tale. They are good little girls, curious little girls who are playing in the woods. They are kind of just doing the next right thing and not really conscious of any kind of big purpose. Yes. So I really enjoyed the book. I enjoyed thinking longer about if this fairy tale were true, what would be some of the flesh that went into the story of Snow White and Rose Red if it happened to a real family? Uh, I will not spoil the ending for you, which I tend to like to do. Ha ha. <laughs> but suffice to say that it doesn't end in a double marriage for Snow and Rose and a comfortable life for their mother the way it ends in Snow White and Rose Red, the fairy tale. The catastrophe is different, but I think you will agree that it is equally suitable. Suitable because they are just children. They are two young girls who want to play in the woods. And the happiness that you're looking for at 10 years old is not the happiness you're imagining to have in life when you're 15. So very satisfying ending. Ends with a lot of joy. Oh, P.S. One more thing about Snow and Rose in case you have boys and girls and your boy likes boy main characters. I think that's that's kind of a thing for my son sometimes. Um, in Snow and Rose, they do have a friend in the woods named Ivo or Evo. This makes it easier to recommend Snow and Rose as a read aloud for your whole family. I hope you have enjoyed this review of Beauty, a retelling of the story of Beauty and the Beast by Robin McKinley, and this review of Snow and Rose by Emily Winfield Martin. I hope that these reviews have helped you decide whether these books are books worth reading. <laughs> <laughs>